This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And today we have a lot of interesting things to talk about, but I'm wondering if my co-host would like to talk about focused nostril breathing, because I did some right before we started recording. Oh, and could I'm wondering we? if I sound any <laughs> different. <laughs> Welcome to the Nostril Breathing Podcast. I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm now without a co-host because he just quit. Um, I'm sorry, if you sound different because you were breathing through your nose... That's <laughs> right. I currently have a clip over one. No, I think that, you know, most times I have a, a sort of like a, a Bucky Beaver voice, as it's been explained to me by an unkind person I did community theater with years ago. I and so really I'm, think that that's a unwarranted and untrue. And I'm kind of surprised that you've hung on to this since <laughs> community theater 25 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Well, welcome to the Bitter Resentment Podcast with Christopher uh, that, Rice and his I'm therapist, Eric I'm all in for that one. <laughs> no, it is a relaxation exercise. I've been, I've been playing with this app called Breathwork. This is not a product placement. We do not formally at this time have advertisers on TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. But I... Um, there are a lot of uh, relaxation exercises and focus exercises that I've been using this app for. And the one I tried today was focused nostril breathing. And it's supposed to make you feel tranquil. That's actually the name of the This is what exercise. Hillary used to calm down after Buttface won the election? Alternate nostril breathing. Oh, I'm sorry. Which is similar. But yes, it is. And this is how I was first uh, made wise to the concept. Because if, if you can calm down from that... <laughs> really there's like you could like slip under the surface of the north atlantic on the titanic without even <laughs> ruffling a feather <laughs> yes it is an excellent stress test for the breathing exercise although i do have to say in multiple interviews she also said that white wine white wine excuse me played a role in her relaxation yes. techniques after I losing could, the election i could see that <laughs> um so for those of you listening, I just have to explain to you really quickly. That was all bullshit. We're not going to talk about focused nostril breathing. I was just torturing Eric for a few minutes there while we while we warmed up well, our voices for today's episode. To be fair, you know, like you brought our um, all of our listeners along for the torture. So <laughs> I hope you found that entertaining and weren't tortured as you were listening to us not talk about focused nostril breathing. <laughs> exactly. We are recording at home. Because we are continuing to shelter at home at the time of this recording, uh, we thought this setup would probably be required by us for, I would say, 30 days, or at least that's what I thought. And we're now on month four. Uh, typically, we record our podcast in our lovely studio on the Sunset Strip. So we are connected to each other via FaceTime 
and we can see our sound genius, Brandon Griffith, whose full name I give hesitantly because I don't want anyone to steal him from us. He's also our resident Star Trek expert. But we are using these microphones. And a lot of other, the brick stud, let's not leave that out. He's got a lot of different uh, qualifications. Absolutely. He is a Lego sommelier, if you will. A master. He is a master. He builds that show, the Battle of the Masters Lego show or whatever on Fox. Absolutely. And he's currently flipping us the bird and walking away from his desk. So I think we've alienated him. And okay, he's so it's so time to stop talking about Brandon. He is not interested in being a part of this podcast again this week. But what I really want to talk about is Eric's left eye, because when we are recording, we have to angle towards our microphone. So on FaceTime, all I see is his giant left eye talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. We don't actually use the FaceTime for anything other than, I guess I could reorient that. We don't use that for anything other than being connected to each other in a way that we can hear each other because we're actually recording in our home homes and then Brandon magically makes it all into one podcast. Sorry to mention you again, Brandon, but you do actually do that. Oh, he's not there anymore. He left. He's playing fetch with his dog. I can see him in the There's back. Just, he this and big Quasar. splash of breakfast cereal on his lens. And... <laughs> in all seriousness, he is eating something. I can see you eating, Brandon. I hope you're having you, a good time. We would be too. <laughs> it's uh, club. It's Keebler Club Crackers, my favorite. Excellent. So buttery. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay, so that's enough about that. Uh, that's enough merriment. That's enough fun. We're going to go right into the That's darkness right. Now. It's back to being miserable. Christopher and Eric, the most miserable podcast in um, all the, uh, I don't know, where where do podcasts exist in all the realm? <laughs> the podcast verse. Right. The podverse. The podverse. Podverse. Today is not technically an episode of True Crime TV Club. That will return next <laughs> week. Fact, but we it's are- not at all. We will be talking about true crime, and we will be talking about our specific obsession with two crimes in particular. And to do that, we wanted to have kind of a broad conversation about a documentary series that debuted recently on HBO called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Are you calling Michelle McNamara a broad? I don't think that's okay anymore. I think that's not PC. (laughs) I'm not calling her a broad. You said it was a broad conversation. I don't know. I will say, however, that her husband, Patton Oswalt, as is covered in the documentary, managed to win over her affections finally when they were dating with an Edmund G. Robinson impersonation, which I would say does not involve the most progressive descriptions of women I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, no, it was definitely he was on that one. Noir speak would definitely not um, pass the uh, the Me Too uh, bar, I don't think. But obviously it was done in a very self-conscious way and it seems like they had a wonderful marriage. The What we want to really focus on is the Michelle McNamara piece of the I'll Be Gone in the Dark story um, because we are going to use it as a platform to talk about two crimes that have obsessed us about which we would love to have more information, about which there isn't actually very much information, which I think is part of why we're doing this. But they possess us in a way that the Golden State Killer case possessed Michelle for many, many years. And now she, if you don't sort of know the rest of that oh. story, she became instrumental in um, solving that case. Um, I don't, Eric, you have not watched the rest this of the documentary is, this series This is the yet. first time I've actually understood what we were doing. I, I don't know. <laughs> 
I, I like wrote you it a all very makes detailed email. I know, but somehow I haven't like I've gotten this wrong repeatedly during the course of pre-production and uh was literally studying right up until recording time because I was so behind Christopher and Christopher's still gonna be better than me. Because Christopher actually knew what we were doing. I, the explanation you just gave the listeners, I finally like, oh, I see the connection. I see what we're talking about. Oh, okay. Fine. That makes... So, okay. Go ahead. Okay. No, I right? just was see, like... See, it, it all like, oh, sort of holds so, together. So I just need to I ask should listen I wrote- to this podcast more often. <laughs> I don't necessarily recommend that because I was listening to it in the beginning and it made me very self-conscious. But I and so but I you're still off upset of about criticism from uh, community theater 25 years ago. So from I don't Patrick know if you're the model that we backstage go with. at our production of Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Yes, that's correct. Um, I sent you this email with this sort of description in it, and you wrote back, "Yeah, that sounds fine." So does that mean you read the email? Or I, see, here's what I think. I think you have. I would say a well-earned confidence in your ability to just sort of do whatever the fuck we need to do once the microphones start recording. So you don't necessarily put as much thought, and by thought I mean anxiety and self-obsession, into your performance beforehand like I do. Well, I have to say I'm going to have to go back and reread the email. I'm typically pretty good to read the emails that I get, but like I didn't know that you meant that we were going to do it today, you know, like that's already come up in conversation at the production meeting when it was like, Oh, so you plan to do this, this recording session. So maybe there was a part of the email that I missed or I didn't read it as carefully as I should have. And I apologize for that, but I, I have to say I'm pretty good to read your emails. Yeah. It'll be fine. Whatever we do. That's what I was going to ignore it. I would have, it would have been clearer. Like I usually say when I, I usually just say, I don't care if yeah. you have a really long explanation about something that I'm like, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. I don't care. It's usually what I'll say if I'm not going to go all in. But like the connection between the Michelle McNamara thing and our talking about the other two, um, our uh, personal, um, I don't know if they're favorite crimes. Anyway, our personal crime conversations um, is now more fully realized for me. Thank you. Right. Sure. Excellent. And hopefully for the people listening as well. I think if you don't know anything <laughs> about like just talk about anything. My God, can we stop <laughs> hearing about on with it? This We've is not got... the personal feelings helpline. Uh, the banter goes on way too long. How many times have I seen that review of anything on iTunes? Anyway, yeah, this is really only banter. So if you want to know banter, this is the wrong show. But if you don't know anything about Michelle McNamara, if you have not watched I'll Be Gone in the Dark, if you don't know of the book that she wrote, which was published after her untimely death. If you like pina coladas and getting drunk in the rain. (laughs) Welcome to the wrong podcast for that, because all we drink is tea and narcissism. Tea and narcissism actually would have been a great title for this. Anyway, maybe later a spinoff. Uh, Michelle McNamara was the wife of Patton Oswalt, who's a famous actor and comedian. She moved out uh, to Los Angeles from the Midwest to pursue her dreams of, uh, of, yes, exactly, to pursue her dreams of being a writer. Uh, She faced a great deal of rejection. She had dreams of being a novelist, but also a, a journalist and tried to submit work to The New Yorker. And along the way, uh, she met Patton Oswalt at one of his stand-up shows. They fell in love. It's sort of a sweet story that's covered in the first episode. She became obsessed with uh, an unsolved series of rapes and murders. But it was in the process of doing a podcast and blog 
mm-hmm. called Crime Something. I can't True remember. Crime Diary True crime. was the yeah. blog. Yeah, and there um, there was several. Like the thing that was really like they talked about. There was one thing where she actually. Do from her own research said, you know, these two kidnappings, they're going to turn out to be related, I think. And two right. days later, they realized the, the authorities actually discovered that the two kidnappings were related when they went to the home to went to the home of the guy to look for one kid and found the other one there. Right. Absolutely. And so she was also getting uh, kind of more involved in the research she was doing. They cover how she went out to a beach in in the extreme uh, northwest corner of California to research a killing that had happened there, and she actually had to kind of scale some cliffs to get down to the crime scene and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Uh, and I think, and, you know, we've talked about this before, she was part of, I don't know if it's a shift, but, but it, it's definitely the beginning of a cultural phenomenon around true crime and conversations around true crime that's continued with the podcast My Favorite Murder, which is a huge hit, that's uh, about women taking ownership of this conversation, this cultural conversation, around a phenomenon that primarily affects them, which is violent crime. Women are inordinately, women of all races, all backgrounds, all ages, are inordinately the victims of violent crime. And they interview Karen Kilgara from My Favorite Murder, and she talks about how the, Michelle's blog was the beginning of, for her at least, um, being able to participate in a study of old crimes that didn't center around lurid pornographic reenactments. And they actually show one that's pretty <laughs> appalling. Which we'll be covering next week on, right. on True Crime TV Club. Absolutely. <laughs> so... um. We're not really going to talk about the Golden State Killer case because that's that's sort of a huge thing. We're, we're I, I was more interested in Michelle's connection to this via the internet because that's really how it started for her. Yeah, she she started looking at the case right, and then she found like a um, like a citizen um, detective blog site where people were posting about yes. that particular crime and began to read obsessively like tens, even hundreds of thousands of posts about this particular crime. Like it was, it was an Herculean um, research project, really. If she had done it, even if she had done it in the library, you know what I mean? Like to read that many posts and comments from that kind of gigantic freewheeling, um, it was a blog. I guess it's a blog. It's a, it's like a bulletin Here's, board is what we yeah, used, they but, used to call it a million years ago. I wanted to ask you if you noticed this, too, because they didn't call it out specifically in any of the interviews or the voiceover. Or if they did, I missed it. But it looked like on screen it was actually a discussion thread on the website for Cold Case Files, which I think is a, a television series that's been on A&E forever. It, is but, that A&E? Then yes. It was, it was on the A&E site, is they, right. they said, is where the, it had, the thread had originated, but it was a gigantic um, repository of comments. Apparently they kicked off there and it just went on for years um, with people adopting sort of monikers for being right. parts of the and bringing all kinds of um evidence of the crime to to play right she also did she read the book first yes there was one book about the case which i believe was called sudden terror and it was by a retired contra costa county sheriff's officer named larry crompton 
And she said that started her obsession with the case. And then she went online looking for more information and found that thread. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So Michelle McNamara finds this discussion thread that's focused on the Golden State Killer. Now, I think at this time, he was actually known as the original Night Stalker. He started out as the East Area Rapist. There was a series of rapes in the in 1976. Yeah, it was bizarre. All... And then they started calling him by the initials. Ear. Ear ons. Yeah, it was really weird. Um, when I first heard about the case years ago before it was solved, he was the original Night Stalker. And the, and the detail that I saw repeated throughout the Internet was that he would call people he, and he would call his old victims. And the, there were audio of the rasping, I'm going to kill you phone messages. I scared the shit out of myself at my mother's house one night late listening to the message and whatever. That's <laughs> And I just like, I don't want to know anything more about that. I read enough mm-hmm. about Richard Ramirez, the other Night Stalker. I didn't need another Night Stalker in my head. So One of the things that struck her, really, as she was just starting to look at it, was one a prolific um, serial rapist and ultimately serial killer this guy was. It was, it was epic. In fact, I was kind of surprised in listening to the. I, I've only watched the first episode of the of this HBO series, but I was kind of surprised that it was that big. Even mm-hmm. now, as far as we are into the whole process of having caught him and convicted him and everything else, I was still surprised at the scope of of what he did of the of the crimes that he was doing. I could see how she became fascinated. A, it was sort of like that thing when we were, um, what is it called, Bayou Blue? Right, um, yes. We were, we, it was like our second the, true crime TV club, yeah. I, I was just astonished that it hadn't been a national story that that many men had been murdered in that, right. by that serial killer, and, and we had never heard of it before. And there were some accounts of for why, but I, I don't really care. And I think she had that same kind of reaction with this story. Because for fuck's sake, like, why is this not getting more attention? And some people think it's because he got such a terrible um, serial killer name that they found him. They started calling him the Golden State Killer, that ear and Ona or whatever the other thing was, um, were such terrible serial killer names that it didn't get play in the press. And when they started calling him the Golden State Killer, the press started paying more attention because wow. they had something sexier to call him. Wow. Yeah. I the <laughs> Buffalo Bill. Right. Yeah. Branding yes. is important with a serial killer. That's I think so. I mean, and it's I, something I know this to bear about in mind. The case. I know this about the case. Of, I know why 
a lot of people believe he was able to get away uh, with it for so long was because uh, the territoriality and competition between the various jurisdictions where he was striking. And this is something that, that Ted Bundy used to his effect, too, because and he, he was worked a as cop. a social worker. Yeah, he turned out to be, spoiler alert, but if you're embarking on this documentary, you probably already know how this ends. We should also say that Michelle McNamara died um, what, before the book that she put together on the case was published, which is Did they get him sad. before she died? I No. I, oh, that's no. too bad. I'm sorry she didn't, didn't have that. I'm sorry she didn't have that experience. But I think all this goes to say what there was, was there was a lot of surface area for her to obsess about, for her to look at. And by oh the end God, of the episode, so much. She, she, as you pointed out, Eric, she finds this message board, and that's really an inciting event. And she begins making these connections with these other citizen detectives on the me- message board. We meet the social worker. We meet the kid who's really kind of a data analyst and kind of a wonky, nerdy, geotagging guy. Uh, she meets other people and they all start communicating over the internet. It's similar to, I know you haven't seen um, Don't Fuck With Cats on Netflix, but it's a similar vibe to that. I still haven't bring, been able to bring myself to watch that yet. Yeah. but And I think this is an important thing to point out because in the in the crime that I'm going to talk about later, you know, there's a reference to modern technology helping crime solving. I think every time we hear that, we immediately think DNA. And DNA ended up being absolutely pivotal in finding the Golden State Killer down the road from where Michelle is at in this first episode. But the Internet is modern technology. People connected over vast distances with various skill sets working together on mountains and mountains of data. That is a form of modern technology that has impacted crime solving. Well, and I have to say one of the things that I'm going to move on to starting to talk about the our um, sure. Personal uh, uh, interests, if you will, mm-hmm. um, in in particular crime studies. One of the things that I think has really been has really struck me is how little information I am actually able to find mm-hmm. because the crime happened prior to the explosion of same. the internet. Right. You know, same here. Like, yeah. It is. It, it, it certainly has had an impact on my ability to research it. There is more, I think, available currently, right, just now at this moment that I'm doing research than there was a couple of years ago because mm-hmm. stuff is being digitized and put up on the web. But there is still not a great deal. Although, to be fair, part of the reason that I find my, that my crime is interesting to me is because... There isn't a lot of information. I, that's a. Should we just? Should I be? Do it. Go, girl. I, I want to hear about your. When, you have told I, me little details about this for years, but I don't know if I've ever heard the full story of how it obsessed you. And I don't really have the full story of the crime, and that's part of why it obsessed me. When I first moved to Los Angeles, um, shortly after, shortly before California became a state. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were part the, um, of the bear flag revolt. Yeah, that's right. Um, there was, um, no, I think it was like, it was the early nineties. Um, and, uh, this, uh, I, and I, part of what I'm discovering also, what I think is actually part of the, the study is that this was the sort of thing that really caught on, on television and particularly for local news. The story mm. was, um, on September of 1992, um, this uh, 
19-year-old high school graduate. He had just graduated from high school. He was going to start at um, UC Santa Barbara in the fall. He was a water polo, championship water polo player. He was already practicing with the team. Um, and, uh, you know, promising young man, just turned 19, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. was kidnapped on September the 13th and... Uh, by people who began asking for uh, ransom uh, of $800,000 at the time. Um, and that was already sort of, you know, that's the local interest kind of a young man gets kidnapped and there's a ransom and 19, claim and whatever. That's not, you're not used to hearing a 19 year old getting kidnapped, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, um, the, so that gets followed along, but there's not much in the way of, documentation in the paper like it's mentioned and then that's kind of it and i think mm -hmm. that the newspaper i mean the televisions were doing what the newspaper was not they were doing the day-to-day -day and the family and the the plea and the whatever um and then kaboom on um september the 26th so not very long after that um the police managed to locate them what had happened was um uh, he, the young man lived in a place called Hope Branch, um, mm, which is mm -hmm. a really Lottie fucking da neighborhood um, near, at least near Santa Barbara, if not actually in oh, yeah. Seaside, really like two and three acre estates. It was, it's, it's a very, like I, I looked it up recently. They call them million dollar homes in the articles I'm reading, but now they're like $30 million homes. So it's, it's a, it is pretty Lottie da property. Um, and he was kidnapped by somebody from a neighboring estate. So he was actually less than a huh. mile from his house um, by somebody who had sold his, by a young man, 24-year-old young man who had sold um, the, fa the, the, the young man's family. Ryan Curtis is the boy who was kidnapped. And he had sold the Curtis, uh, Eric Penzion, I think, uh, Penizon, Um had uh, sold the family some dogs. So he'd sort of met him, um, but it wasn't clear if they were friends or whatever. And, uh, but he was really right down the road. And so the police had been baffled during the, there were long conversations with the family, elaborate long conversations, because what they were doing was hacking into phone boxes. Um, Eric and his accomplices, uh, a young man um, who he went to school with, um, Jeffrey, uh, where am I? Jeffrey Locus and uh, Stephen Gillen, who apparently was like, as I recall from the story, was like a former Marine or something. He was older than the two. He was 29. Um, huh. And they had gotten all of this elaborate equipment. They had cameras in the hedges at the Curtis house and were following him wow. and photographing him and keeping diaries about the whole plan. They even apparently did and videotaped a practice run on kidnapping him. And, um, uh, so they snatched him. He went to his girl, he dropped his girl, went to church, dropped his girlfriend off at her house in Goleta. And one of them climbed into the van while he was in the house and hid behind some surfboards, which starts to sound a little sketchy. And then when he comes out, he comes out from a, behind the surfboards and holds a gun to his head. And they take the car to uh, the church parking lot. They abandon his car, at the church parking lot. And he is taken to, uh, the the Pansion Estate, which is really just down the road, where all three of the young men are living, as well as Eric 
Panzion's mom, Anne, who was a prominent attorney, as was her husband, who was not living on the estate with them because they were estranged, right? What? She was in a different house. He was in like a three-bedroom house that was on the property, right. and she was in the main house. Um, but the other ones lived there, and then they put him in a five-foot-long toolbox for the first night, which had, they showed pictures of it in the paper. It had like a, a vent on it or something kind of paper, but that was apparently only, and then he was held in this tool shed, and um, and they were um, hacking into the phone boxes so that they could have these elaborate conversations without fear of being traced um, huh. to negotiate with the family for the $800,000 ransom. They got him down to 600000 in the process of these conversations. And then Eric, for some reason, went to a gas station and called on a payphone, and they were able to trace the call and nabbed him. They went to the house, and then this is where the story starts to kind of unthread. Well, they, it's already unthreaded uh, for me, but keep going. I'll tell you. They, know, yeah. they found the young man in one of the bedrooms. The door was locked, so that's not the shed where they kept saying he was stored. He was also not tied or in any other way um, held in the house, right? And he didn't appear to be harmed in any way, so he was just in a bedroom at the house where the hmm. kidnappers lived, um, and then they freed him. Um, so it they was like being the police, the, the, FBI, the um, FBI, and the and the police, I'm sure, were involved. Um, they took him in, and then Eric said that um, Ryan was part of the kidnapping. That it wasn't um, uh, huh. a kidnapping. That it was that Ryan had been in on it. Um, which wow. is because they really they lived less than a mile apart in a gated community. So it was like they were already anyway. So that that happens. Right. So all of this. So this by this point, everything, the newspaper and the television station and everything is just right. exploding with all this. And the family's denying it. He was not part of it. And uh, Penzion's lawyer is saying, yes, he was part of it. And this will all come out at trial. And, you know, and it turned out that in addition to being um, being held um, kidnapped, they were also he was also being used for sex. So he, there was sexual assault Whoa. involved in the so in the um, in, in the kidnapping so as part of it. So there's allegedly sexual assault involved, and then you have one party saying he was in on the kidnapping. So the implication there is it wasn't sexual right. assault. So is this some like, weird sex game that they're trying right. to extort money out of their parents for between two young men who know each other who really live down the street from one another? Or was this, in fact, these weird, obsessed people who kept this diary and called each other captain and ranger and stuff in the diary wow. and had cameras in uh, Curtis's fence and photographed him and followed him and rehearsed him? I mean, it was very, like, it was really elaborate um, sort of plan, whatever the nature of it. And then there are these claims and counterclaims at the time of the young man being free. And then the sexual aspect becomes involved. So then nothing. <gasps> All news coverage vanishes, right? Wow. We don't talk about it again for a year, at which point Eric accepts a plea bargain where he is charged with much knockdown crimes. Um, so he has the possibility of parole and they limit to like, he's only charged with like, um, 
using a dildo on him, but not charged with fucking him. They also say that only he of the three, even though they were all living in the house, were having sex with the young man. Uh, I don't know. Like, Mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't know which is true, but I know that big story, then the story completely disappears. And then when it comes back, it's this very minor plea bargain. He pleads no contest. He's sentenced. So do his, whatchamacallit, and the entire thing disappears. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So, what obsesses you? The most about this crime. The thing that obsesses me about the crime is that the story disappeared. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. it was this really hot, really sexy, really like everything you want in a salacious uh, news story. It's two kids, very wealthy kids from a very wealthy neighborhood um, in Santa Barbara. There seems to maybe be a connection between them. There are claims and counterclaims of uh, the participation. There's all kinds of stuff. If it is truly the crime that it is, they have them dead to rights. So mm-hmm. I don't see why there needs to be any sort of plea bargain. They found him at his house. You know, like, how is that sort of... So the plea bargain becomes a little suspicious and the fact that everyone goes silent. Mm, mm -hmm. Right. And the fact that there's no more news coverage about it ever again, like Mm -hmm. that to me says that the parents got together and said, "Okay, look, your kid is older than our kid. He was 24 and their kid was just barely 19, like just graduated from high school. So, you know, he should take the rap for this. He should. Um, I guess he did Mm -hmm. extort, try and extort money from Mr. Curtis. Um, but it, it seems like there is something more to the story. Do we know somebody named Matthew Heller? That name sounds really mm. familiar to me. It was one of the names on the, the L.A. Times bylines. Most of what I found was in the L.A. Times, but mm-hmm. also some of the other papers. But I didn't really. They were all. Okay. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Eric Shaw Quinn, but it seems yes. like what you may be suggesting is that rather than cover the complex and let's say overtly homosexual intricacies of the real story that emerged, the press went silent. Is that a fair assessment? I don't think it's the press who went silent. I think it's the parties involved who went silent. The press was really hot with this. He was in on it story. That's part of the reason it was so intriguing to me at the time, because, you know, uh, Michael, Michael Cardi, um, Uh, Eric's lawyer was, you know, on the TV saying he was in on it. This is not, this is not a kidnapping. This Mm -hmm. is something completely else. So it, if the families wanted to hush up, like if there was homophobia, it was on the part of the families trying to hush up a story about an elaborate sex game in which their children were involved Mm -hmm. on their properties and estates and whatever. And extorting money is still not okay. And, 
but that that but that part of it was that the primary thing was to extort money from Mr. Curtis, and for that there was a crime. That crime mm-hmm. they were willing to sort of cop to, and everything else was sort of tamped down, and nobody talked to the press or said anything further after that after that point um right eric appealed the case apparently he's still in prison they thought at the time he was only going to serve about 13 years but apparently i from what i could figure out from looking up online he's still in prison but he tried to appeal it even though he gave up his right to appeal in the um in the uh the plea bargain because his co-conspirators were much lesser charged so the thing that intrigued me was the wealthy, powerful, both of his, uh, Eric's parents were powerful, prominent mm-hmm. local lawyers. Mm-hmm. So the, the the chilling effect of the powerful parents to hush up this story about their right. children and move forward about, you know, and these quotes about, he's the kind of man that you want your daughter to bring home and other young men look up to him and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, recreating a new, and that may actually be true. I don't wish Ryan any ill, at mm-hmm. all, he may actually have been the victim of a crime here, but it is the silence that mm-hmm. ultimately intrigued me about the the story more so than the crime, which was plenty salacious, but not that amazing and completely solved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unlike McNamara's or yours, where or mine, yes, which is mine. still very much wide open mystery. Why don't you talk about your your mystery? Is much more of a an ongoing kind of case and the kind of thing where more attention maybe should be paid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's part of our objective here. Um, the case that obsesses me is the 30 year unsolved homicide of William Arnold Newton. Now, uh, William Arnold Newton is probably more widely known in the gay community with men of a certain generation as Billy London. <laughs> he was a, you're uh, actually a later generation who still knows who he is. So, yeah. I don't know that the generational thing has had that chilling an effect on knowing uh, Billy London's prominence as a porn star in the early 90s. He was a porn star from the mid 80s to the early 90s, which was, to be blunt, a dangerous time to be a gay porn star. This was the onset of the AIDS epidemic. He worked in films where um, condom usage was not mandated yet. And then he did a few films after it was. And in fact, in researching... um, because this is really the only digital footprint that he has is his his porn work. Uh, I found a lot of magazine articles from the era that that talked about it was very eerie that talked about the approach of AIDS on this industry and HIV uh, in a way that that seems almost frightening, you know, in retrospect, because they were saying, yeah, if somebody shows up to set and they don't have any symptoms, we don't make them wear a condom. You know, it's terrifying. It was terrifying. Um, there is no evidence that is presented on the Internet, at least, that it, that he was HIV positive or that played any role in his murder. But this was the climate in which he was murdered. And I think it's worth pointing out that he was a gay man who died a violent death in a time of very widespread death in the community. And, and there is also a reflexive response to this when I bring up the case to people that anybody who might know something may well have died. Well, I don't necessarily believe that's true because I know many survivors of that period. You're one of them, Eric Shawquin. Uh, Some other journalists that I've talked to about the case, they lived through that period as well. So I'm optimistic that somebody out there might know something, but I want to give some details of the crime and also the details of where the investigation has kind of zigged and zagged over the years. The thing that originally... Well, the gruesomeness of the crime is this... 
his yeah. uh, head, severed head, and feet were discovered by a transient in a dumpster off of Santa Monica Boulevard, not within the borders of West Hollywood, but kind of just outside. Over near of Hollywood it. Forever Cemetery, right? Is is that it? I thought it was near. I, the that's Studs how I Theater. remember it. I, this was this was about the same time as my um, as my little crime. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it was. I think it was um, that that was the the general area where the the dumpster was. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, there, this is a sort of interesting side note, but it's also a way of possibly getting some attention on the case. There's a belief, which is outlined by a music blogger or a Guns N' Roses fan, that the discovery of, of Williams' remains inspired a lyric in a Guns N' Roses song. Um, and I believe that song is called Double Talkin' Jive. I'm going to post this blog post on our on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. There's detective work that has more to do with Guns N' Roses and their career and what they were up to that sort of pinpoints them as possibly recording in a studio near the dumpster where the head and foot were found. Um, yeah, that's that would a side be really note. possible. Because he was a gay porn star, he was also a producer. He worked at the Hollywood Spa, which was a popular gay, is still, I believe, a popular gay bathhouse here in Los Angeles. Maybe. That is where he met his uh, would be soon to be lover, also a gay porn producer and director who uh, worked under the professional name of David Ray, R E Y. Uh, they. Um, uh, that's how they met. They produced films together. He also used the uh, professional name Bill, middle initial E, period, London. Again, I assumed, as with your case, I assumed if you've done any sort of porn, if you know the person's professional name, you can find a digital footprint for everything they've done. That's really not true. Like, I couldn't yeah. find the vast majority of his movies on the internet. What I could find were a host of scathing reviews <laughs> in, in in gay magazines that had been digitized. You know, the where the reviewer just reviews it like they're reviewing a revival of Mame at the Paper Mill Playhouse. That's you know. really funny. Swap meets paper thin storyline. You know, it was like, oh, for God's sake. That's a, this is all a long way of saying that the most extensive coverage of the murder has been done by journalists uh, who cover the adult industry. And I reached out to a friend of ours, J.C. Adams, who's a longtime industry veteran and a journalist, and he covered it around either the 15th anniversary of the murder or the 20th anniversary of the murder. I don't uh -huh. remember which. He had a blog, which is no longer operational. Uh, I believe called Gay Porn Times, and it was actually sort of more of a variety of the porn industry. It wasn't focused. It wasn't just dirty pictures. It was uh, business news for this viable legal business. But really, it was the dirty pictures that people came to see. <laughs> right, and he uh, it sure builds it helps build an audience. It it really does. It's all about that affiliate revenue for some people. At right. Least. Um. So he covered it extensively around that time. The detail that really got my attention, other than the gruesomeness of the crime, is that the one who kept the torch burning around the investigation was his father. Which Bless his heart. Murdered gay porn star's father doesn't write him off and say, you know, he walked out on me. There's also evidence to suggest that Billy left home very young when he was 16. Whether or not that classifies him as a runaway, I'm not exactly sure. No he, telling drifted around the country. He lived in Oklahoma City for a while with a partner by the name of Terry Elliott. He moved to Los Angeles shortly thereafter. I think he spent three years in Oklahoma City. 
And then he arrived here in uh, Hollywood and began working at the bathhouse, met David Ray, and began producing and performing in adult films. So his father's name, I believe, is Richard Harriman. For a while, he did have an email address that was designed to solicit leads. That email address, according to people on Wikipedia, at least, is no longer operational. I don't know if Richard Harriman is still with us. If he is, uh, we would like him to know that we want to shine some attention on this case because we are approaching the 30th anniversary of this My murder. God. When, um, was the, when were the remains found? October 29th, 1990. Wow. Yeah. So other details that um, that came out of my conversation with J.C. Adams, the family hired a private detective to investigate the case. The detective worked on it for 19 years and eventually surrendered the results of his investigation to the LAPD. The detective had this to say. He did not want his real name ever used in association with the case because he believed, and this is a quote, this was a sophisticated killer. And when I heard that detail, what I thought could possibly have been one night stand gone wrong, you know, went home with the wrong guy. All those tropies, sort of slightly derogatory things we as gay men hear when, when a gay man gets murdered or disappeared became something else. This is a really gruesome, malicious murder. What happened to the remains is I think part of what obsesses me about this case. It's like it is the reverse of what you do to a body when you're trying to cover up the murder, right? The, the, the detective novel cliche is you cut right. the heads and the extremities off and you bury the rest of it in Angela's crest. This is the opposite. This killer took the most identifiable part of that body and left it where it could be found, in an urban area, in a dumpster, where it was found by a transient. That says to me that the killer is trying to send some sort of message. I think the feet are about, I have Billy now and he can never get away. Um, he also presumably huh. held on to the sex organs, which were included in the remains that were not found. Now, we have to add the giant caveat here, which we know from talking about true crime, that there is such a thing as guilty knowledge, which is that certain details of the crime scene are held back by the investigators so right. that they can eliminate false confessions. But... This is really, this is a shocking and gruesome crime. And I think the fact that we have gone quite this long, and, and let me add this, we've gone this long and there have been bursts of attention that were given to the case. An LAPD detective named Wendy Berndt, uh, and there's some conflicting reports on whether or not she was the original detective assigned to the case, but she was promoted way up at the LAPD, and she eventually became, I believe, the supervisor of the Hollywood division. And when she got that position, wow. she said, I'm bringing attention back to William Newton's murder. She Good reached out to the press. She had no qualms about reaching out to the adult industry blogs. She uh, got a Fox reporter to do a little um, segment on it. It didn't apparently produce any workable leads. Uh, the father was disappointed by the subsequent drop in attention, and that is when he and J.C. Adams had their conversation about it, and J.C. did his blog post. So this has not gone completely ignored over the years, but given that we are approaching the 30th anniversary, um, we want to bring some attention to it, and I believe our plan is around October of this year, we are going to revisit the case in some more detail than this. And hopefully I will have been able to do some subsequent research. And hopefully this episode right now will turn up something, which we welcome through direct message at the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. And we are, of course, determined to 
contact what, whatever LAPD detective who might be in charge of this and, and give them anything that we find. You know, the goal here is to is to see if they're the thing that the Internet has done for a lot of investigations is it has reached people who don't know what they know and don't know what they have. You know, and there and my hope is that there's somebody out there who knows something who's still alive, who didn't die in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, right. you know, who has some detail. And I think the thing that his father said over and over again, and, and I'll stop caffeinated rambling here. Um, they believe that Billy was walking down Santa Monica Boulevard, that that was probably the last place he was seen. And they think somebody, somebody remembers that pretty young blonde boy walking alone down the street. Was there any any interview or any information from his partner at the time? I have not been able to find anything. I, there were some interviews with Terry Elliott, who uh, lives in Oklahoma City. I think there were some quotes saying Billy wasn't really wild about working in porn. He wanted to be a visual artist and an illustrator, and it was financial reasons. The wall that I hit in my internet research was around David Ray, who was a, a porn professional with a public-facing porn career under that professional name. I couldn't find a lot of information about him. And uh, that was frustrating. And so I have contacted my personal network of friends, people who worked in early gay media around that time who lived out here. And my hope right. is, to, is to churn up some leads. But I've talked to people who work in porn today and gay porn today, and they're, they're not really aware of this case. It's, it's not something that's like hung over the industry. And I, it's an industry with really high and rapid turnover, specifically among right. the performers. One of the reasons sex workers have trouble uh, and porn workers have trouble unionizing is people don't stay in the business for very long. So the memory maybe doesn't go back quite that far. But I have spoken to people who do know about the case. You clearly remember the, the case. Or I you do. Know about Hollywood I forever. remember the case, although I remember it. I remember what they found slightly different. I thought they had found a headless body. Um, but, uh, you know, like that was my memory from way back when. That Right. And that's part of the Guns N' Roses investigation is that the song lyric is actually a head and an arm. And the the blogger said did an exhaustive L.A. Times archive research, which apparently you can do. You can go back to like the 1800s in the L.A. Times yes, archives. You um, can. Couldn't, couldn't find anything in which a head or an arm was found in a dumpster anywhere in Los Angeles. So the blogger changed it to a head and feet. And that's when Billy London's murder came up. And he or yeah. she, I don't know the gender of the blogger, was also able to say it was likely that the recording studio that Guns N' Roses was working in at the time was close to the... the part where the body was well they're certainly so, right right in that that area the um the 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 studio the recording studio where i recorded um oh uh blood communion <laughs> oh yeah um, that little ann rice book you did the audio blood book communion, right that one <laughs> uh, the ann rice book yes i'm the voice of uh, uh, blood communion um yes was right there in that same stretch of um of uh, you know, of Hollywood, that same part. I'm trying to think it's, I'm thinking and talking at the same time and that's not going together very well. So I sound a little off, but I think it was on Melrose or maybe it was on um, Santa Monica Boulevard. I, I can't remember which it that is. Sounds but it's right. That part over near where propaganda studios used to be. Um, uh, yeah. And that's not far, I believe from where the Hollywood spa and some other sort of 
bathhouse slash sex clubs are still located to this day. It's it's a semi kind that of industrial I have, area. <laughs> that I'm I have very limited knowledge. Not of, a bathhouse so, guy, are you, Eric Jarquin? Not, not really. Even. I always all I can think of like the idea of it seems sexy at first, and then I imagine the smell of disinfectant and Lysol, and it's like wow. No, sort of like doing your own really housework not. during a pandemic, right? That's, that's probably really what it not. smells and, like. And yeah. I don't, you know, and my house doesn't smell like Lysol and disinfectant either. Like, and it's still <laughs> plenty of, like my house smells like Chernobyl rain shower. Right. Is the, um, is the scent that I've chosen. I, it doesn't smell like any real rain shower, but, but it's <laughs> definitely not that. And even that would not be conducive. It's just the, the, the dirtiness of it. I, I just, yeah, nothing about that environment sort of appeals to me. It's it's a shame because it seems like it'd be very efficient. It'd be like yes, McDonald's. I'm, my, I, I'm not a saint. I'll put put this out there. Um, but I will say that my one experience with an actual bathhouse was I was doing a ride along with the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department for research for a novel I wrote called Light Before Day. And we pulled up outside of the Hollywood Spa because the, the LAPD were uh, questioning some visibly intoxicated patrons who had been on their way in and all I could think was right. oh god please don't let me know any of these queens please <laughs> just please I'm, I'm Christopher I'm with the you traitor you pig <laughs> hanging out with the guy anyway so that was a that was a different time different era so we are going to um, Halcyon days if you are if you listen to this episode if you are uh, fascinated with Eric's cuckoo clock uh, no, if you are, uh, it's not a, a cuckoo s- clock. It is a grandmother clock. I realized that right as I said cuckoo clock. I just in my mind, it's a cuckoo clock. We are going to be paying more attention to the unsolved murder of William Newton, aka Billy London. We are going to revisit it in more depth on the 30th anniversary of the case, which is several months from when this recording is being made. Look for the dinner party shows Facebook posts about it. Share those posts. Um, make a list of the names that we rattled off and see if your own Google searches can turn up anything. David Ray, a porn producer from that period. Richard Harriman, Billy's father. We'd like him to know that we're trying to draw attention to his son's murder. All that sort of stuff. See what you can do. Do it reasonably. And if you find anything interesting, uh, send us a direct message through the Facebook page for the Dinner Party Show. Okay, that was all my official crime solver And you heard stuff. it here. Christopher has cuckoos in his brain. I have cuckoos in my brain. Eric Shaw Quinn, do you know what's happening next week on our podcast? Because you were a little iffy on this God, week. you know I don't. You know I will have no possible clue. But I think, because we didn't do one this week, it will be a true crime TV club episode. That's correct. And Yay! Our standard disclaimer, we break down and serve up the episode in a way that does not require you to watch them. In fact, Cindy Comforti wishes she hadn't watched them and had just relied on our <laughs> breakdown well, of Cindy them. 40 rule is if you don't like it don't watch and we'll uh, spoil the whole thing for you but if you want to read ahead like a good overachiever the episode we will be covering is the 1980s the deadliest decade the episode title is friday the 13th and it is season two episode three until then i'm christopher rice and i'm eric shaw quinn and you've been listening to tdps presents christopher and eric thanks This is TDPS.